Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, and he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is it not the whole, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came to settle by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. We had just sang that song, Be Thou My Vision. The way you see the world matters. The lens in which you see the world matters. We like all to think that we see things objectively without any prejudice, without any preconceived notions. But the truth is, we have a way we see the world. What I like about that song, Be Thou My Vision, is the pleading nature of it. For God to be my vision. Abram, he dealt with that in the last chapter. He was seeing things through his own way. There was a famine in the land, in the land that God had promised. Instead of crying out, he goes to Egypt. It was a very dangerous side quest, and it did not work out very well. The song, Be Thou My Vision, its origins are in St. Patrick, the Apostle of Ireland. Now, I know it's a couple weeks away from St. Patrick's Day, but I thought I would mention some of the history behind him and how that plays into our scripture today. Um, Saint, uh, so Patrick, he was not born in Ireland. He was born in England. He wasn't a leprechaun who drank too much in like college football. Um, he was a kind of a prissy English boy um, of a well-to-do family. And one day, pirates attacked his hometown and took him as prisoner and then later slave. And I know um, Fred Savage on The Prince's Bride is like, you know, captured by pirates is good, but it's not very good in real life. In real life, it's not very good at all. In fact, he is sold into slavery into Ireland. And as he grows from 16 into his 20s, he learns Gaelic. He learns the customs and the religion of the Druids, who were the main religious faction in Ireland during that time. He suffered beatings. He suffered many, many things. In fact, the, the, t- the absence of his own liberty, um, he was, in fact, a slave. 
but he gained something during that time too. He didn't just gain the ability to speak in the language of the people there or their customs. No, he had a, he encountered God himself and he had a relationship with Jesus. No longer was it just the religion of his parents, but it became his one desire, his one obsession. And every morning as he went to tend the sheep of the man who, of the man who owned him, He would wake up earlier than he had to so he could greet the dawn with prayer and praise to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And every morning, no matter how icy, no matter how cold, no matter how rainy it was, he would wake up early to do do this one thing, to give honor to the one who was watching over him. And one day, Patrick hears this voice from the Lord telling him that today is the day Today is the day of his release. Today is the day that he would flee from slavery and that there would be a boat at the coast. So by faith, he ventures out and sure enough, there is a boat. The captain, he has to convince him to sail him back to England that there would be some reward for him. And the captain of that boat sails him back to England. They get back to England. You'd think like, okay, well, that's good. That's the end of the story. Not at all. 28 days they wander in the English wilderness, starving to death. And the men there, you know, they they make the kind of comments you'd see in a lot of places. Where's your God now, Patrick? And Patrick cried out to the Lord. And they just so happened to come come across a herd of boar, of pigs, who were also malnourished, which made them very easy to capture, kill, and eat. They get back to England. He's now in his 20s. He left a 16-year-old boy. He's now a 22-year-old man. And he comes there and you think, okay, this is a good story. And he lived happily ever after to the end of his days. Except Patrick, once again, he had this great passion for the Lord now. And he talks about, and he talks about hearing from the Lord. A situation very similar to that of, something very similar to that of Peter when he, heard, when he had the vision of the Macedonian man calling out for him to go to Macedonia, Patrick, even though he was enslaved and mistreated, he has this vision of, of, uh, of uh, the uh, sorry um, of the Irish calling out to him to come back to their land to preach to them the gospel. He say he writes in his uh, book the Confessions. That the voice of the Irish, that, let me go back here. I saw a man coming, and as it were from Ireland, his name was Victorious. And he carried many letters, and he gave me one of them. I read the heading, the voice of the Irish. And as I began the letter, I imagined in in that moment that I heard the voice of those people who are near the woods of Lokot which is beside the Western Sea. And they cried out as with one voice, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. So Patrick, similar to that of Abram, called out amongst his people and amongst his land to go to the land that God had for him. Not a land filling with milk and honey, but a land of danger. But because he had given his life to the Messiah, he gladly go, he joyfully returns. And unlike other missionaries during his time, he would not compromise the gospel to be more acceptable to the people he was ministering to. And in one of those instances, during for us would be Easter, but for the Irish, it was one of their pagan holidays. And one of their, one of their customs during this pagan holidays, you couldn't light a fire. You couldn't light a lamp. There was to be no light in all of the land. The king of Ireland made this, the king of at least the land he was in, made this the law. And you would think if this happened today, a lot of pastors would be like, okay, well, we got to go with whatever the law says, no matter how much it might go against our, our conscience and what the Lord says. No, instead, he goes to the highest point he can find, and he creates a big bonfire so that as people woke up that morning, they saw a light shining in the darkness. And that's what he wanted them to know, that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Years and years later, a songwriter creates this tune, and it goes something like, like this. Mm-hmm. 
He was just instrumental, and he named it Slain. He named it Slain because the hill that Patrick had lit the fire on was, was called Slain. So that tune was in commemoration of St. Patrick, the apostle to Ireland, not backing down from the rulers or authorities, but to let the people know a light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You may have been enslaved to all of these superstitions, but there is one who in his name, all bindings break off. Many years after that, an English poet would pen the words that we would sing in our thing of, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. It was a popular poem at its time, but just like the tune, Slain, this poem goes into obscurity, like so many poems, like so many songs before it. And it was in 1906 that a university student rediscovered the melody, rediscovered the lyrics, put them together, and 1,500 years, almost 1,500 years after St. Patrick had lit that fire, we have the words and we have the song that we just sang today, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. Not be all else to me, save that Thou art, Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence my light. I often wonder, so many songs whether we're talking about in popular culture or in the church, get made every year. And some people are really passionate about these songs. They're like, in fact, I know people who would say, okay, this song is going to bring revival. I remember the song, um, How He Loves Us. And that was the big thing, the guy who who wrote it. He's like, this is going to bring revival amongst the youth of the nations. And it doesn't happen. In fact, many of you are probably wondering, what song are you even talking about? So I always wonder, how come... That song goes to obscurity, and songs like Amazing Grace stick with everybody. Somebody who, doesn't, who could be in China who's never heard of Jesus probably has heard the song Amazing Grace. It's because of the story. It's because that those who wrote this, it cost them something. This is why Be Thou My Vision has lasted throughout all these things, that even though lost was refound, it's because the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Because the song itself is the, go- is the gospel in a song of us pleading, God, be my vision. I don't trust my own eyes. I don't trust my own heart. Be my vision. Abram, last week in chapter 12, he looked out amongst, uh, in his own wisdom, in his own knowledge. There was famine in his land. So he goes to Egypt thinking that will be safer. Excuse me, more safe. But it wasn't. In fact, he was worried not so much about starvation killing him, about somebody's actual sword killing him. And it turns out to be a very challenging time. But he has now gone back. In chapter 13, he has now gone back to where God has called him to. It was, it's, when he went to Egypt, it looked reasonable. It looked the right thing to do. But he didn't cry out to the Lord his God. He was seen with natural eyes. Leaving Canaan for Egypt may have seemed reasonable, but he is now seen through different eyes. Hebrews 11.10. Hebrews 11.10 helps us to understand Abram. Because we look at this and we read this story, and we're tempted to think, well, this is just a story to establish the land rights of the people of Israel. No, it's not. God gave them that land, yes. But that's not the heart of it. The heart of it is Hebrews 11.10. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He goes back to where God had called him to because now he is back on track. He wants to see through different eyes. It was like all those years back, Abram is singing that song as well, Be Thou My Vision. In fact, in the verses that Becca just read, in verses 10 and 14, we have this phrase that in verse 10, Lot lifts up his eyes. And in verse 14, God tells Abram, lift up your eyes. What do you see? How do you see the world around you? Do you see it through the natural eyes or do you see it through supernatural eyes? Do you see it through faith or through circumstance? What I want to challenge you today is to see through faith. Abram, in the last chapter, tried to affect his own deliverance. In this chapter, He will wait upon the Lord and renew his strength. 
He, when it comes to decisions, and this is what chapter 13, chapter 12 amounts to, is you have some pretty impossible situations. In chapter 12 of Genesis, there's a famine in the land. Now you need to make a decision. Do we stay where we're at or do we go? In chapter 13, there is strife between Lot and Abram. And now there's a decision. This, this town isn't big enough for the both, both of us. He tells Lot, you take one way, I'll go the other. So Lot has to make a decision. Abram has to make a decision. You have so many decisions in your life and so many people are so plagued. How do I make this decision? How do I know the right way to go? Well, let me share with you four steps on making godly decisions that will not leave you with any regret. Ready for this? One, pray. Actually, this is just good. No matter what you're dealing with, whether you're in triumph or tragedy, pray. Connect with the Lord. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you if you're a Christian today. God himself decides to dwell in you to make you his home. So pray, connect with him, and you will find if you seek him first in his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you, but you must seek him first. You must, it's not just simply a breath, breath prayer of saying, God, please bless this baseball game or whatever. But connect with the Lord. Get into the very holy of holies. Even if God does not give you direction at this point, you will see things clear from this point on. But if you decide to skip this step, you'll see it through the natural way. And you'll let all of your prejudice, all of your preconceived notions take hold of you. Second, read. Read the scriptures. Specifically, read the ones that relate to the decision that you are dealing with and do not ignore the ones that seem to contrast some of those choices. There is no easy way in this. And like I could tell you today, you can go on BibleGateway.com and you can do just search for some words. But if you're wondering what college to go to, you type in college, it's not in the Bible. So you're not going to find it there. You have to understand, you have to have an understanding of God's word to know the relevant scriptures. This is something I'm so glad that God did in my heart when I was a teenager, is that I would just spend so much time with God's word. That like when I think of things, I I think automatically where in the scripture somebody else has gone through something similar, or maybe there's actually teaching. You know, oftentimes when I say about like reading the scripture, sometimes we use that as an excuse to find something that agrees with what we're dealing with. That's proof texting. Find something that deals with it and then obey it. Third, ask. First is pray. Second is read. Third, ask. Ask godly counsel. Godly counsel. Bad counselors destroy nations. If you have a bad counselor, if you're asking somebody their opinion, and they just love that feeling of getting to tell you what to do, that's a bad counselor. Do not listen to them. But look for somebody in your life, perhaps is older than you, wiser than you, humbler than you, more knowledgeable in the scripture than you, who prays more than you, and ask them, okay, here's what I'm going through. I've been praying about this. Here's what I see in the scripture. Do you know anything in the scripture I should know? And they'll give you godly counsel, wise counsel. And in that, you also have to listen to that counsel as well. So now, before I get to number four, you have, you have a big thing in front of you. You have a lot of choices. You've prayed about it. There's certain things that you just don't feel right about. They're okay in the scripture, but you don't feel right about them, so you've eliminated those. You read the scripture, and you soberly look at the choices, and you realize, okay, so these ones are not godly, so I'm not going to do those either. Okay, now you've asked somebody, you've talked with them. Okay, here's what I'm going through. Here's these things. You've prayed about it together, and they're like, okay, they've narrowed it down a little further. Now, let's say you still have several, more than two choices to make. So you've sought God through prayer and through reading his word and through asking and praying with other believers. You sought his kingdom and his righteousness. Here's number four. Do. Do what you want. I'm assuming you've gone through one. If you, if you skip one through three and you go straight to four, you're in a heap of trouble. But if you've gone one through three, you still got options left. Do what you want and own the decision. Sometimes we agonize over this and we're like, and we're paralyzed and we're like, okay, I'm not going to do anything unless God like writes down on, on my eyelids, do option B. After all these things, if you've sought his righteousness, if you are in his will, if the most important things are the most important things, do what you want. Now this is 
If you get direction from the Lord, you get direction from godly counsel, then go straight ahead and, and, and follow that. But if you still have options left, you've done those things, do what you want. If that is, if you are, if you have the heart of God in that moment. This is what I want to get to about seeing through God's eyes. This is still, we're still chapters away from chapter 15, verse 6, where it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What we are seeing through these chapters, why we're going through these chapters, is we get to see a soul who's conforming into the likeness of God, who hasn't quite gone to that point just yet. He wants to start seeing through God's eyes. When your decisions are grounded and originated in the vision that God has for your life, you will never be in a greater or safer place. Martin Luther, when he was being backed into a corner at the Diet of Worms in uh, Germany, and they were asking him to recant certain writings of his that were grounded in the scripture, and that's a lot of pressure. In fact, you pressure somebody like this, they'll give up almost anything. But, he, but he, instead, he told them this. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I could do no other, so help me God. Amen. When Abram and Lot separate here in chapter 13, Lot picks the land he thinks is right and safe. But there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. Abram, on the other hand, calls on the name of the Lord his God. So today, as we go through this scripture together here in chapter 13, verses 10 and 14 contain that, those words about lifting up our eyes. So see, we should see this as an exercise. We should see this as something that's encouraging us to see through God's vision that that song would be our very heart. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. We need to see through the eyes of faith. That's verses 1 through 6. In the second part of here, when we see through Lot's eyes, these are carnal eyes and worldly eyes. Carnal doesn't necessarily mean sinful. It just means in the natural, without any consideration of God. Third, Abraham's eyes are starting to be the eyes of faith. Seen through the way we see the world matters, like I said before. Me and my wife were watching this TV show, and this one character asks another, I wonder what the world looks like through your eyes. And so the the TV show shows us the world through his eyes and everybody's a Muppet singing their, their words to him. This other character, he sees everybody as just another version of himself. And then this other character, when he looks at people, he sees a dollar amount. The way we see the world matters. In the last chapter, Abraham had made this side trip or side quest to Egypt. He didn't pray about it. He didn't inquire of the Lord. He didn't call out to the Lord. And it turns out bad. Not just for him, but also the Egyptians. Verse 1 here, he is back to basics. He's back to where he should be. For those who, those who have gone through a time of wandering from the Lord, or people, I know a lot of people will say to me, I want to know what it was like when I was first saved and I could hear from God all the time. I felt so close to God. How do I get back to that fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Go back and do the things you once did when you did. For people in their relationships, marriage relationships, they start feeling distant from, distant from their spouse. We don't love each other like we used to. We don't have the tenderness we used to. What, what did you do back when you did have that tenderness? When you did have that connection? Why don't you do that again? Why don't you start making an effort again? Instead of just assuming that person should just shut up and get along. Go back to the things you once did. This is what the Lord says to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 5 of Revelation. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. That's what Abraham, in verse 1 here. So Abraham went from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him to Negab. That is where he should have been all along. So if you've wandered, you're wondering, how do I get back to the Lord? Go back to where you once were. Go back to where once you weren't, once were. In verse 2, we have this statement about his, uh, his riches here. And he journeyed on from Nagab as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. And Ai. Um, there's blessings from Egypt that he had right here. He'd gained lots of money. He was now rich in livestock and in silver and other things. But as we will read on here, the... Uh, the poet 
Notorious B.I.G., words are true. Mo money, mo problems. <laughs> he goes back to his old camp between Bethel and Ai. Most people live between Bethel and Ai. What I mean by that is the name, the, the meanings of those two names of those two towns. And actually their history within the scriptures. Bethel means the house of God. Beth house, El God, house of God. It is where Jacob, the grandson of Abram, um, will see angels ascending and descending from heaven on an escalator. That's really what it is. And hey, I'll get to that when we get to Jacob. Okay, um, let me move on. Um, it is the house of God. It's the house of blessing. It's where the triumph is. The mountaintop is the way we'd use it in evangelical lingo. And then you have Ai. Ai is Hebrew for ruin. And it was a ruin. Because when the people of Israel left Egypt the second time after the Exodus, they come across Jericho. They have this great victory. You know, um, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down. And then they get to the little town of Ai. And Ai kicks their butts bad. And they found out it's not because they were just really deficient in their martial abilities. It's because they had sinned against the Lord. They had done what Abram will refuse to do in our next couple chapters right here, where they won't take the plunder of the people that they've defeated. In fact, except one guy does, and that's why they have this curse on them. So AI means ruin, and most people live between ruin and the house of God. Most people live not in triumph or tragedy, but somewhere in between. And that is, where, that is where all our choices begin, is between triumph and tragedy. And how we react in triumph or tragedy will directly, well, how we act in those things are, is in direct proportion to what we've built between the two. See, if you have not developed a reliance on God, when you're in triumph, you take it for granted. And then when you're in tra- tragedy, you lose all hope. It's between Ai and Bethel that you develop your relationship with God. We shouldn't stay in Bethel all the time. We shouldn't stay in the mountaintops all the time, but people seek that, they chase that. But God has called us into all the world to preach the gospel to all creation. Most live between Bethel and Ai. He goes back to the place that he once had his camp to get back to where he was before his little side trip, side quest. And in verse 4, he goes back to the altar he once built, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Back to the altar. When you have wondered or been sidetracked, it's a good idea to return to the altar that was once built, to remember the things that God had said and done in you and for you and to you. That's how you see through the eyes of faith. Where you go when you... Where you go when you fail, when life has let you down, that's what matters, where you turn to in those times. In verse 5, we see an interesting person all of a sudden appear. He was not in chapter 12, but here we have, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. I said this when we began this series, when we were right in chapter um, 12 of Genesis. I said this, What's Lot doing here? Do you remember what the Lord told to Abram and the Ur of the Chaldees in Mesopotamia? Leave your kindred, leave your family, and go to the place that I have for you. And I said back then, what's Lot doing here? I kind of gave a little foreshadowing at the time. Lot will not be a net benefit to Abram. He will be a source of contention. God told Abram to leave his family and to go to the land. He would show him. So what's Lot doing here? We are about to find out that following God's word will save us from so much drama. By the way, in this verse, we see that Lot is also rich. And his interests are going to conflict with Abram's. Man, if only somebody had warned Abram to leave his family and go to the place that God had told him. If only somebody had told him that a couple times. I don't know if you feel that. I mean, I relate to that personally. Where I didn't listen to God. And I just, I made these little compromises. I'm like, well, I'm still kind of obeying. I'm doing these other things, but I'm kind of obeying. And all of a sudden, the, the kind of obeying becomes a real big problem. And I'm like, and God's kind of like, man, if, if only somebody had told you about that. 
in verse 6, in verse 6, we have, um, we have the trial here. So that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell in the land together. You know the easiest way to drive division in a family? It's money. 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 Add two people who love each other, add money, and you will equal division. They have too much for such a small area. So it's like, this town isn't big enough for the both of us. Obey God when it comes to taking care of your body, and you'll need far less healings. Obey God when it comes to relationships, and you will not have to ask God to bind together, which should never have been torn apart. Simply put, simply put, if you have, if you have wisdom, you will need less miracles. If you have obedience, you will need less miracles. So there's this division between the two of them in verse 7 that we're about to find out. And in, in verses 7 through 12, we see the world through Lot's eyes. First, we have the inciting action, the conflict between the two in verse 7. So this is the second point right here is Lot's eyes. They are carnal eyes. They're eyes that do not see what God wants for him and for others because we see this in the way he makes his decisions. First, we have the conflict in verse 7. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At this time, the Canaanites and the Pezzasites were dwelling in the land. There's a conflict in verse 7. And how you deal with conflict matters. How you deal with conflict will speak so much more to those around you than what you will tell them your testimony is. How you deal with conflict will either validate or invalidate your testimony with those who are watching. In Romans 12, 18, we are told, if possible, to live at peace with everyone. The man or woman of God should not be known with who they're currently feuding with. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Let me make a brief aside with that one right here. If possible, as far as it depends on you. You're going to come across people in your life, and many of you have people in your life like this, who they don't want peace. They want struggle. They want, they want, they want enmity. They want to be enemies with you. And that's why we have verses to love our enemies, to good to those who persecute us. Because sometimes, while it may depend on us, we want peace. The other person does not want peace. Abram values peace. He values peace over being right. We don't even know what the conflict really was, who is in the right, who is in the wrong. And Abram doesn't care. He just doesn't want to fight with family. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I don't know if you guys have been there or not. Sometimes I'm having a struggle. I'm having a conflict with somebody I love. And after a while, it's like, you know something? I don't care if I'm right or wrong. I just don't want this conflict anymore. Amen. So in verse 8, Abram is, um, is wanting peace. This is not because he is a peacemaker. I want to dispel something real quick here. Being a peacemaker is not some special gifting God gives to a few, but the command is for us all to be peacemakers. For the blessing of Jesus Christ in the Beatitudes was blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Every child of God, every person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation should be a peacemaker. Some it becomes more naturally than others, but all of us, we are called to be peacemakers if at all possible. In verse 9, it, we have, Is it not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, then I will take the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. I just want to mention something right here. Lot is really, really lucky. I love history. And this story has played out other places around the world. And do you know how most of the time it plays out? When the chieftain, the patriarch, in fact, this whole series we call it patriarchs, because that is who we call Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the scriptures. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in other places, other times, when you have the chieftain, when you have the leader, you have the patriarch, and you have a family member who's causing problems in the land, most of the time they kill them and take their stuff. Abram, on the other hand, he is actually giving Lot the first pick. Lot is lucky to even be here. Normally it's not 
the strong giving the weak the first pick of the land. Abraham is starting, Abram is starting to see through different eyes. He is starting to see through eyes thousands and thousands of years in the future. When Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Abraham knows this before he knows this. He is modeling. You know what he's modeling? He's modeling the words of Christ already. Because Christ said, when his disciples were arguing who's the greatest, I always love that verse because it makes me think of Muhammad Ali. I'm the greatest. Just like, settle down, everybody. You're not like the Gentiles. You're not like all the other world kingdoms who their leaders lord over each other. He's like, the greatest among you will be the least. The one who leads you will be the servant. Abram is already acting this way. He is greater in every way, shape, and form than Lot, except um, every great, in every way um, than Lot. But he is giving Lot the first pick of the land. And in verse 10, we have Lot lifting up his eyes. We get to see the way that Lot sees. In verses, in verses 10 and 11, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, Thus, they separated from each other. I don't want to say anything mean about Lot, really, other than how come he didn't have, why, how come he didn't like preserve any of the land for his uncle that he thought was so great? Why did he take it all for himself? Why did he take all the land that he thought was good? And he's like, that's, that's mine right there. You get to have the dry, parched land. You know, the land that Abram's in, it often deals with droughts. It doesn't have aquifers and everything like that like you have the Jordan Valley used to. He lets him have the other part of it. What does Lot value in here? He sees through carnal eyes, worldly eyes. He only sees according to his desires and his wisdom. What looks good is not always good, and what looks safe is some of the dangerous place you can be. Verse 13 tells us, so this is a bit of foreshadowing here, that the Sodomites are already making a name for themselves in sin. Was that even something he even considered? How bad must have their sin must have been for all the land to be like, you don't want to go to Sodom. I mean, I know we kill our neighbors and stuff, but you don't want to go to Sodom. <laughs> wisdom, true wisdom, includes God's vision. It is based in God's vision. Lot takes advantage of Abram, and he gets the worst lot because of it. Pun intended. <laughs> Verse 12, we see he moves his tent close to Sodom. I know we have the advantage of hindsight on Lot, but I want to say it anyway. Don't move your tent close to Sodom. Don't try to get as far as you can to sin and think it won't stick to you that you are somehow above it all the concerns of mere petty mortals. Don't think you can put yourself into situations in which sin is glorified and you're just going to be fine. Because when we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, we see the destruction of Lot's family. We'll see he is not untouched by the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Some people think, well, I need to be in the worst of things. I need to go to wherever so I can be salt and light in that situation. Don't think that you are so holy, so righteous, that you will not be touched by these things because it's said of Lot that he was a righteous man and he wasn't. Some of you actually might be on the edge of something you know is in your heart is wrong. Maybe you're not at the point of sin just yet, but you know you're in a place you should not be. Stop moving your tent so close to Sodom. Finally, in verses 13 through 18, we have Abram starting to look through different eyes. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. Why does Abram... Why doesn't Abram make a face, uh, fuss when Lot chooses the fertile wetland when he is stuck in the dry, parched land? It's because he wasn't looking for an earthly kingdom. If you're looking for an earthly kingdom, then every time somebody offends your gentle sensibilities, you will make a fuss about it. Every time you feel like you're being misused, you will rage about it and you will not let it go. But he's beginning to trust God. He's, tr he's beginning to trust God as his Lord. Hebrews 10, 11, 10 says, For he was looking forward to the city 
that has foundations whose builder and designer, builder and designer and builder is God. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. That's what he wanted. Not riches, not land, not power. He wanted God himself. So in verse 13, we have that warning about the men of Sodom right here that, that Lot is deciding he wants to hang around. Verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, um, were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So who gets the better lot, Abram or Lot? Lot thought he was chosen, choosing the better lot, but because his lot was fertile and fertile ground and good soil, however, his, however Lot's lot was contaminated, but Abraham's lot was not contaminated. So Lot's lot was bad, but Abraham's lot was the better lot. All puns are intended. <laughs> That's a lot. If you underline verses in your Bible, underline verse 14. It is a changing point in the life of Abram. Then the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated, lift up your eyes. What happens before God speaks to Abram? Lot separates from him. It's addition by subtraction. This is addition by subtraction here. Right after Lot separates from him, the Lord spoke to Abram. Some people are crying out, God, why aren't you speaking to me? And God is saying right back to them, you haven't listened to what I've already told you. Some people are standing in the way of your blessing and your growth. We see this all the time in churches. The first sermon I preached here, other than the one where you guys elected me, which is probably a good idea because the first one I preached um, right after that was how to destroy the people of God in three easy steps. And I was preaching on Jezebel and Ahab who destroy a man named Naboth. His life, his good reputation, and it's because they wanted to be the ones in control. It was all about them. They saw through carnal vision. I see it, I want it, I'm going to take it. There are people in churches That's their attitude, and they will hold the church back from the destiny that God has for it until they leave. Oftentimes, these people will be very bitter when they leave because they will find out that the pastor and the elder board is not going to give them what they truly want. Because all we have to give you, all I have to give you is Jesus. It's all I have to give you when it comes down to it. I mean, through your faithful giving, we can do a certain amount when it comes to blessing, physically blessing others to meet needs in our community, but it's not endless. All, and any other organization can do the same, but they can't do this. They can't provide a space for you to come together as believers and to worship Jesus. All I have for you is Jesus. And if that's not enough, yeah, you can leave the church. That's fine. I don't think they do it on purpose, and I don't think Lot was doing it on purpose either. But once those people leave, God's blessings and his work start to flow. And in verse 14, we have God telling Abram, lift up your eyes. In verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes. Now in verse 14, God tells Abram to lift up, his, to lift up Abram's eyes. To start seeing through God's eyes. To start seeing what he thinks maybe is impossible is possible. The message, one of the, me- the most stirring messages ever you will read is the gospel. And the gospel tells us this. We are more sinful and wretched than we e'er, ever dared feared. But we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. Lift up your eyes and see through God's eyes. No wonder this song sounds so pleading. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. In verse 15, God tells Abram, he reminds him of the covenant promise that the land and his offsprings, uh, his offspring would be forever. Verse 15, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Paul the Apostle in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, he explains the enormity for, of this for us. You're reading this and you're maybe thinking, okay, the tract of land of Israel, that is for Abraham's descendants forever, and that is true, but it's so much more than that. Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. 
The promise is for all who believe, for we are sons of Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus. In verse 16, the Lord tells him, I will make your offspring as the dust on the earth, so that if one can count the dust on the earth, your offspring can also be counted. You know your fulfillment of this promise? Paul says once again in Galatians that you're all sons of Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus. I was thinking about this. I was dwelling on this this whole week, and it was, it was so wonderful. I don't, I, my heart couldn't hold it. And it's this. Every time somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, when you bowed your knee before the Father who is in heaven and you proclaimed faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your only Lord and Savior, this is what happened in heaven. God the Father turned to Abram and he told him, promise kept. And when somebody else did, he turned to him and he said, promise kept. You are not always faithful to the covenant, but I am. And when a person turns from drugs and alcohol and comes to faith in Jesus Christ, he turns to Abram and says, promise kept. That's my son, but he's now your son as well. He's your daughter. She's your daughter as well. When someone turns away from a false religion, even those people who grow up in church, but they never truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, like Patrick of Ireland, he turns to Abraham and he says, promise kept. And through all of eternity, until we are in the new Jerusalem, the city that, that Abraham was looking for, God will keep telling him, promise kept, promise kept. There is not a promise that God makes that he does not keep. And that is the confidence we can have in the Lord. In verse 17, God tells him this, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. In Abram's lifetime, as Abram, then Abraham, he only owns one plot of land to bury his dead. But God tells him, walk through it, because one day your descendants will own it. That's the confidence we have in the Lord. It's an already, not yet. See, already I am saved. I am justified. God is sanctifying me. But one day I'll see him face to face as well. One day, all of the evils of this world will be thrown into the lake of fire where the fire will not cease and the worm will not die. One day that will happen, but now I live in the victory of Jesus Christ. The gospel message is that, see, a gospel message throughout history, it just means good news, a proclamation of good news. Probably one of the most famous ones outside of the scriptures, that is, is that of the Battle of Marathon. It's where we get running a marathon. So the first guy who runs a marathon, it was after the Battle of Marathon, which was between the Greeks and the Persians. And it was a battle they weren't going to win, but they ended up winning. So a guy runs, and he goes to the people he needs to report to. And he runs his marathon. He gets over there, and he then, before he collapses and dies, he says, Nike, which means victory. So every time I run a marathon, I try not to think of that story. The gospel message is a message of victory, that, that the work of God is done in Jesus Christ. That is why he said it is finished. The work of salvation is finished. And we can walk with confidence through the land because our Lord and Savior, our Father who art in heaven, he has gained the victory. And we walk and we live in the perspective of victory. Part of having God's vision is looking at the world through his eyes, which is he has already had the victory and will have the victory and continues to have the victory. Two weeks ago, I mentioned the importance of an altar. And in verse 18, we see, So Abraham moved his tent and came to settle by the oaks of Mary, of Mary I can't pronounce that, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Now we call the front of our sage the altar, but really, your altar is anywhere you're at. An altar in Abram's time was a place where he could worship God. He could sing praises to his Lord and Savior. He could sacrifice. He could make commitments. Everywhere you go is an altar because you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. Come back to the altar. He travels for a while and makes an altar. Are you making altar? Are you making 
the altar a part of your daily routine? To be a living sacrifice? Are you meeting with God in the deep place of prayer and praise, or has your love for him grown cold? If it has, remember what the Lord told the church in Ephesians. Go back to your first love. Go back to the things you once did. Worship team, would you come up at this time? The Lord is speaking to you today through his word. This is not just, oh, that's neat. That's cool that this happened in history. He's speaking to you through his word today. Instead of seeing things through your own eyes, choose to see through his eyes. That he might be your vision. He says to you, lift up your eyes and look around. That song, this is my father's world. He has the victory. I don't know what you're going through. You might be going through a really difficult time. Or you might be going through a mountaintop time. But I think most of you probably are living between AI and Bethel. And what you're doing right now is going to be something that you are going to is going to give you the strength to either endure one or the other. So during this last song, this is our opportunity to respond to the message. To maybe make that our prayer. God, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. I want to see through your eyes the circumstances in my life. Instead of turning to all these things, these coping mechanisms that I've done throughout all the years, I'm going to turn to you first. I'm going to seek your righteousness and then trust that all these things will be added unto me. I'm going to walk the way you want me to walk. You know, when they had that conflict, we have in the scriptures right there that the Canaanites and the parasites were in that land. They were seen. How are you going to react? People in your life are seen. How do you react? How do you react to triumph and tragedy? You're going to build during between AI and Bethel, the strength. You're, let me rephrase that. You are going to establish in your relationship with the Lord during that time, which will, either, which will be your anchor during those moments. During, our, during this time where we reflect on God's word, don't just take this in stride. Well, that was a very good story, but call out to God to be your vision, to see through the Lord's eyes. Today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what I mean is like you die right now, where are you going? Do you have a confidence that you know that you will be with the Lord? Then call upon the name of the Lord. Abraham, he builds this altar and he calls upon the name of the Lord. And in chapter 15, verse 6, we'll see he believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and you will be saved be saved. He will remake you. He will give you a new heart with new desires. And it's in that that we start seeing through a different vision, through God's vision. Would you please stand as we sing this final song?